Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and co-author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, delivering kinder, smarter, affordable care for all. I co-author a monthly leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry. This month, we're looking back at 2020 and forward to the future of U.S. healthcare through the perspectives of leading investors from private equity and venture capital. Our article is entitled, The Worst and Best of Times, Investor Perspectives from the 2020 Kane Brothers Virtual Healthcare Conference. And my co-author is none other than Rob Freeman, the president of Kane Brothers. Rob, welcome to House Calls, where the bankers are always in. Hi, Dave. Rob, it's been quite a year. Uh, you and I actually did the first 2020 House Calls podcast together right after the J.P. Morgan conference in January. Eleven months later, we're here again, older, wiser, and considerably more socially distanced. We are indeed, Dave. Uh, I'd say the only thing that we could have predicted uh, back in January when we were uh, recording that and when we were out in San Francisco is that we were going to have a, a very difficult election season. Um, and that, of course, has proven to be true. But everything else that has happened since the pandemic began, uh, I would say, is, of course, completely unparalleled and, and certainly was not predictable uh, to most of us at that time. Yeah, worst and best of times from an investor's perspective really covers it. Um, Everybody pulling back in March, and here we are at the end of the year with the valuations like I've never seen before in my career, a roller coaster kind of year. For sure. And, you know, I'll, I'll bring it right down to the level that we operate at, at our business at Kane Brothers, which is we're going to finish the year with a record performance over a record performance in 2019 and 2018 as well. But I could never have uh, forecasted that and did not forecast it uh, as I look at uh, every month in March and April and May and June and in, in, in through the summer. Uh, what we saw was that our business, which I'd say is a small you know, microcosm of the overall level of the healthcare economy and the deal economy, was down at that point in time. And in the second half of the year, there has been just an extraordinary resurgence, which ultimately uh, has led not only to these levels in the stock market that you're talking about, but also private equity valuations and also strategic M&A transaction activity and private equity and venture capital investment activity. Well, uh, there'll be a lot of postmortems on 2020 over the next couple of months, uh, especially in the healthcare industry, which has had a year like no other. Uh, we, we don't need to go over ground that many others will, will cover, but we do have an interesting vantage point that not many pundits or commentators do explore, and that's the story of healthcare in 2020 from the perspective of private equity and venture capital investors. Um, our inspiration for this discussion and our article came from the Kane Brothers Conference in October, where top investors gathered on panels to talk about how their firms had weathered the COVID storm and how they were looking at opportunities and trends in light of COVID and beyond. So first of all, Rob, uh, let's talk about the conference itself, uh, which really has become 
perhaps the most prominent fall investor conference. Uh, and congratulations again to you and your team for putting it on. Uh, what was it like to host your first ever virtual conference in 2020? Well, look, we were we were fortunate. We've got we've got a great team at KeyBank that um, knew what they were doing from a technology perspective, and our three and a half day event came off flawlessly from uh, from that perspective. We were able to grow the event uh, pretty significantly. We ended up having close to 800 attendees over the three and a half days, and uh, we doubled the number of private company presentations. So we did just about 90. Uh, presentations, all private companies. That's one of the unique things about uh, our event. There are no publicly traded companies, unlike most of the other uh, investment conferences out there. We also had some really interesting keynote discussions. We're fortunate to have Bruce Broussard from uh, Humana and some terrific small panel discussions that were largely oriented towards joint venture activity, uh, what's going on between private equity and in some cases, not-for-profit health systems and so forth, which we see as one of the major themes happening in the industry. Um, and then behind the scenes, we had over 350 one-on-one -on -one meetings that we arranged. We had demand for twice that amount, but ultimately we were delighted with the turnout and the feedback that we received. Do you think you'll take any of this virtual capacity into next year's conference, assuming we can all meet in, in person? You know, I think we, we definitely will. I think that uh, the virtual element will in some way become a permanent part of the conference. Of course, we all miss the, the ability to interact with people in the hallways or over meals during conferences. That's why people go to them. But I think that the virtual presentations, the one-on-one -on -one meetings, not only will we continue that at next year's conference, but frankly, we're already leaning in and, and planning to do more of it in January when we won't be in San Francisco for J.P. Morgan. And we've got uh, some, some unique themes that we're putting together to to conduct a whole host of meetings over the course of the month of January with our clients. Let's move to the PE and, and venture investor panels. And despite the different approaches of PE and venture investors, uh, both groups had similar responses to 2020 and are optimistic about U.S. healthcare going into 2021. Of course, hard not to be optimistic with some of these valuations, but let's listen to one of your guests, John Maldonado of Advent uh, International. First thing we did, we created the war rooms. This was across the portfolio, not just healthcare, right? What is the impact going to be? What's going to be the hit to cash flows? What are the leverage multiples look like? How are we going to get through this? Depending on whatever state recovery you predict. That took us from March to April. Then we were stabilized where we needed liquidity, we got it, and it was a what next? And we created this win room concept, which is, okay, how do we go from, we might have lost time. Now, some number of our portfolio companies took a year back in terms of the five-year plans that we had for them. How do we get back on the front foot? So we, we again, we flipped these war rooms to win rooms with a concept of how do we get on, how do we think about disproportionate share gain as the market comes back? How do we think about digital enablement? How do we think about finding consumers in ways or patients in ways that we weren't before? War rooms to win rooms. <laughs> Rob, is that, is that what you saw as well? We did for sure. March 13th, the environment changed for everybody. What we saw is uh, a very rapid decline in activity. And I'd say that that really continued as, as John and others said for at least six to eight weeks where 
people were looking inward and where it was pencils down on activities, both live transactions, which many of which were well into the late stages of negotiation and documentation. And that didn't really pick up again until people began to have a sense of what their portfolios look like. So companies that were exploring transactions or raising capital had some sense what the impact of COVID was. And I'd say that as we got to the end of the second quarter, we began to see some signs that there would be renewed activity in the market. Rob, was there a a trigger event or was it just a kind of gradual shift in perspective, momentum, optimism that sort of triggered the second half of the year? Was there any big event or was it more of a slow, gradual ascent? You know, I don't know that there was a single event other than the fact that the initial wave of the virus, which of course took many large cities down a very, very dark and, and tragic place, we began to see that improve dramatically. And when that happened, there came to be a point of view that we could control this to a certain extent. And, you know, frankly, I can't explain the stock market, Dave. I really don't profess to understand what drives it other than optimism. And there was optimism that we were at some point going to get on the other side of this. And that ultimately led investors, it led companies, both buyers and sellers, to begin to say, hmm, now there is some light in the tunnel. Let's let's get back at it. Well, also a lot of stimulus, fiscal and monetary policy working together. The U.S. economy overall probably has come through this, at least to this point, in as good shape as any other country in the world, save China, which did a, a severe lockdown. So I, th- I think there was a feeling, too, that the going off the cliff economically wasn't going to happen, even though pockets of the country were were suffering terribly. Well, I'd certainly say that you're right. Stabilization is often something that gives people the point of view that you've hit bottom. And while you may flatline for a while, eventually it begins to go up. And of course, in the healthcare industry, we're both part of the solution. And of course, it was a big part of the problem. That the problems from a business perspective that were uh, exposed you know, by the by the pandemic, but also people started to look at okay, well, this is where the solutions need to come from as well, and not just you know with regard to vaccines and therapeutics, but also with regard to treatment and care patterns and care delivery. One thing we heard from both panels was the longer-term focus on value and solving, in Nancy Brown's words, uh, undeniable problems. So there's clearly uncertainty in the marketplace. As companies were going through this, investors were going through this, they were really pretty focused on the longer term while addressing short-term concerns. Let's listen to what Julia Carr from Blackstone said about their focus during the crisis. That's where it comes down to the strength of the business and the business model and conviction on long-term performance of the business, right? Because IPO is a point in time. As you said, it's multiple years for us to sell down our stake. And so we better feel really good (laughs) about the company's ability to deliver on that continued performance. And that goes back to our underwriting process, right? When we're looking at investment of like, how sustainable is the performance of this business? What can we do potentially to improve it? So, Rob, what's your reaction to Julia's observation? 
Well, Julia was talking about IPOs, but I would actually broaden the comment to talk about any types of uh, transaction activity that involves long-term investments. And whether that's by a private equity firm or a venture capital firm, or of course, a strategic investor, a company that's buying or investing in another business. And I think that the shock of COVID caused people to have to figure out what their long-term point of view was and is. And once they had that vision and that conviction, they were able to look at investing in businesses with renewed vigor. And so, in fact, in the second half of this year, we saw valuations that didn't see any uh, material diminution. And in many cases, valuations, multiples that continued to grow. And I'd say that's because people were looking at the long-term impact. You know, they sort of gave 2020, for use a golf phrase, a mulligan year. They just said, okay, you're going to have to sort of restart. We might have lost a year in the company's development, but we can look beyond it because we see where we think this business is going longer term. Rob, I know when I play golf, I need all the mulligans I can get. So I'm glad the, glad the industry gets one for 2020. And that takes us to our second panel, which brought together venture investors. Jill Frew kicked that discussion off by asking about the unbundling of hospital-based services and their redistribution through new channels. Marty Felsenthal of Health Velocity Capital talked about virtual technologies and how robust their platforms are becoming to meet care needs in new holistic engaging ways. Let's, let's listen to what Marty has to say. We absolutely believe the pandemic has been a great accelerant you know, and what really excites me about the sector is that I think it's really healthcare's best equivalent, for lack of a better word, to Amazon. I mean, you know, these these platforms, Teladoc, IndyLive, American Well, Doctor on Demand, they are healthcare without the bricks and mortar. They are going from, you know, in the same way that Amazon went from books to CDs to DVDs to televisions these platforms, which have not exclusively locked up distribution channels, similar to an Amazon who hasn't exclusively locked us up as consumers online. You know, they've gone from teleurgent care, moving to longitudinal virtual primary care to behavioral health care to dermatology, to chronic care management to post-acute care management, you know, which over time we think is going to lead to better, faster, cheaper care for everyone. And, you know, in align with what's our mission that I just mentioned, which is a more affordable, sustainable, consumer-friendly healthcare system. So we think it's, you know, not only here to stay, but we think it's really important for our country and our healthcare system. Yeah, better, faster, cheaper, more affordable, more accessible. The real promise of, of what venture investment offers the healthcare marketplace and more importantly, healthcare consumers. Uh, you want to just touch on so many of the themes that Marty brought up in his comment there. It's always been the holy grail to deliver better care for lower cost. That will be one of the things that will be completely sustainable, in my opinion, from the pandemic, as Marty said, the acceleration of these trends. So whether it's primary care and companies like Oak Street and ChenMed and Cano and Village MD and Iora, all of which are using both technology, but also using risk models, which rely on, frankly, you know, really strong technology and artificial intelligence 
whether it's home health care, behavioral, as he and others have mentioned. And then, of course, you know, we've got to talk about what's the impact on life sciences and the use of tools and diagnostics that are critically important in not just treating a pandemic, but treating, you know, chronic uh, disease in this country. In every one of those types of categories, we're going to see uh, continued and probably accelerating development of new models using underlying technologies that are consumer friendly and, of course, which use a lot of science as well. Yeah, really, really exciting. So the panel moved to the discussion of, of big tech and big retail. Let's talk about that for a moment. Ambar Bhattacharya from Maverick Ventures actually thinks that big tech, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google, missed a once-in-a-generation opportunity by not making more inroads during COVID because that was a time, if they had made the investments, where consumers would adapt new behaviors and new delivery channels. So a swing and a miss there. On the other hand, the big retail players such as Walmart, CVS, Walgreens seem to be well positioned for a transformative impact, at least according to Nancy Brown from Oak. Um, I think that the conversation merged a little into other players, you know, like uh, like Walmart um, and uh, companies like Walgreens and CVS and others that are retail players that have, it's a different question than infrastructure, tech infrastructure. It's all about access. It's all about the fact that they are actually where consumers are living their lives. You know, they're out and they're, they're doing, they're getting, going shopping and doing the things that they need to do. And they have, and they are many, many times a brand that people trust in locations that don't have a lot of other access. So I think what's been really nice is this is the year um, in some cases, again, maybe the third or fourth model for Walmart and some of the others, um, having worked with Minute back before it was owned by CVS, we've all been around these retailers for a long time, but they're really coming into their own. They're creating substantial relationships, um, substantial footprints, I should say, um, real clinics that can make a difference and adding telemedicine and playing a real roles. So big tech, big retail, trust, access, convenience. Rob, lots for you to sink your teeth into here. You know, I'm not going to predict who is going to do it best among all of those big big tech, big retail. At the end of the day, what people are craving and need is good health care. The companies that can deliver it, whether it's virtually and or in person, and it will be both. That's going to be who's going to be able to deliver health care most affordably with the you know, most efficacious uh, delivery in this country. If you look at, you know, my daughters, the millennial population, they look at healthcare as simply, how do you help me get better or stay well? And they're not interested in doing it in the way that requires them to only, you know, have a singular path going to your primary care physician, waiting for the appointment and all of that. And I think that's going to take more time. This is accelerating it, as I've said before. But as these other generations begin to come into their own and to replace the baby boomers, I think we're going to see that maybe all of the above uh, of those big tech and, and big retail are the winners and lots of others because some people have to start with a whiteboard. And that's where the Oak Streets and Chen Med, you know, come in. They started with a blank board and said, how can we do it better? And now we're seeing that. 
You know, I saw a demographic statistic that kind of blew my mind this week, Rob. It said by 2025, so five years from now, boomers like you and me will only be 8% of the U.S. workforce. Gen X and Y, the millennials, will be fully two-thirds and higher of the U.S. workforce. It feels like the pace really could pick up from here. I mean, they're the group that taught us to get into cars with strangers and rent strangers' houses. Well, look, our population is growing, and there's a massive portion of our population that doesn't have access to affordable or good health care. And, of course, the pandemic and the economic crisis that has arisen during the pandemic is shining a light on that as, as never before. If it's you know generationally or geographically or socioeconomically easier <laughs> to gain access to good, cheap, as Marty said, health care, then that's going to be a winner. And so it's it's not just the generation. I think that's critical. But my gosh, the, you know, there's so many parts of the country where people have to drive, you know, enormous distances to get to a caregiver and so forth. You know, we have to solve those issues. And that probably is where the big box and big technology companies really come in because they're so pervasive. Yeah. So I think all of those things are, are really going to help and give me great hope about what our healthcare system looks like in five or 10 years because of these converging factors. It's so fascinating how the big companies see healthcare as a target-rich environment, You know, 20% of the economy, lots of room for improvement. And in that focus on big tech and big retail, sometimes we miss the 900-pound gorilla in the healthcare space, uh, United Healthcare. And that was a point Ambar Bhattacharya from Maverick made when he talked about their influence. I've done some tech investing as well over, over, over my career. And over the last five, six years, every board meeting has a question of, so how, how does Amazon affect our business? I think the equivalent in healthcare for the next five years is, is the question of what, what is United Health or Optum doing to affect our business? My personal opinion is, is that I think the way that United and Optum are, are playing their, their their chip, they're playing them beautifully, is that they're, they're, they're setting themselves up to be a national health system um, and a national provider for not, not just virtual, by the way, and you know I think a lot of offline things too. And so I think that that's a new form of competition for a lot of these regional health systems. Uh, it's a new form of competition uh, for a lot of local providers. And I think the real opportunity and risk for a lot of these existing providers is how do you stay one step ahead of what Optum and United are doing? And so I think my hope is that actually pushes innovation faster. So is United Optum Amazoning healthcare? And if they are, what does it mean? I think that uh, Ambar's comments are right on. And what United and Optum are doing is transformational. You know, Optum is the largest employer of physicians in the United States. Not only the United, not only the largest commercial insurance company, uh, but they also are the largest employer of physicians. They have the second largest surgery center company, one of the largest urgent care businesses, and and so forth. So I certainly agree that every healthcare provider and payer should be carefully thinking about what United and Optum are doing. But I also think that some things that have come out that we've seen this year and that we're at the, you know, we talked about a lot at our conference, in fact, have to do with, you know, some of the more traditional health systems, hospital and health systems that we 
see innovating better than they have before, out of necessity, of course, but we see more joint ventures like Fairview Health System in the upper Midwest, which we advised on a partnership with a private equity-owned large home health company called Accent Care, or like CareSource, a, uh, a tax-exempt, very large Medicaid health plan headquartered in Ohio, but with Medicaid plans in a number of states that partnered with a private equity firm, Wells Carson. I think we're going to see more and more of that. And whether it's horizontal or vertical or both, we have to redefine the, the boundaries of how to achieve those objectives that Marty Felsenthal talked about just a few minutes ago yeah. in that quote that, uh, that you played. Such a great point, Rob. Um, and I think what's, what's happening is the industry is starting to shift away from how do I optimize performance under these convoluted payment formularies and reimbursement and so on to really focusing on outcomes? How do we deliver better care, fewer errors, more prevention, better wellness? And when companies start focusing there instead of how do I optimize the payment machine, they begin to be less concerned about owning and controlling everything and more concerned about, okay, what am I really good at? Where do I need to partner? What can I outsource to drive these great outcomes? You know, and I've sensed throughout our, our talk today, it doesn't surprise me at all that you're optimistic going into the future. And you know, I can't let you go without making a big, bad prediction for 2021. So what are you thinking? What's your bold prediction for next year? Well, I'll, I'll make one for next year, and then I'll make one for, you know, for five years out. For next year, what I would say is something that lots of other folks have said, which is, you know, when we do get back to a place where we can return to a somewhat normal work environment, I think that we're going to find that our workforce is greatly distributed, not just our healthcare workforce, but our financial services and lots of other industries. I think we're going to have people that are going to uh, work virtually for quite some time. And it certainly has changed my views as a manager. I had always felt previously, you know, you have to be in one of our offices in New York or San Francisco or Cleveland or Chicago, and I don't feel that way anymore. The uh, big bold one somewhere way down the road, think about the antitrust movement that's going on right now with big tech. We were just talking about Optum and United. I think that, you know, five plus years from now, you'll probably see the government step in and say that those two companies have to be uh, divided up. They're so big and they're doing the right things. I'm not saying I support that at all. I happen to think it would probably be a mistake, but uh, some, under some administration at some time, I guess is you'll see that happen. Well, we've got an incoming HHS secretary, assuming he gets confirmed, and Xavier Becerra, who's the one that engineered the big antitrust suit against Sutter. And that could become a model for going after some of the concentrated market power in regional markets and then, then nationally as well. Pretty interesting prediction. I think you're right about that one. Well, Rob, can't thank you enough. And as always, just a, an absolutely fascinating discussion. I hope our listeners take time out to read the, the article Rob and I wrote, The Worst and Best of Times, Investor Perspectives from the 2020 Kane Brothers Virtual Healthcare Conference. We've tried to synthesize a lot of great thinking, some of which you heard today. In the meantime, uh, Rob and, and all of you listening, uh, have a wonderful holiday season. Stay warm and let's hope 2021 we're all back and seeing one another again. Thanks very much.